0: Embassy in Tehran. have Supporters sort of come out of the closet. America's several tons of one hundred years old.
1: My mother started taping at the birth of the twenty four hour news cycle. She was saying, Well, we've got to get this. Nobody else is gonna keep this.
0: She hit record and she never stopped. She was very mysterious and very private. She lived in the richest part of the city. She had nine homes packed to the gills. She was a hoarder, you know, she hoarded everything.
2: Who decides what's normal? I think maybe a re-examination of what is normal is, is in order at this point.
1: My mother was enormously controlling. It was a long point of contention between her and me about my boringly conventional intellect compared to her. You
0: know, she was definitely spied on by the FBI
2: want me in there no, you make it work mm-hmm. you have kept me out of your institution you want to have faith in democratic process, make it work the child fell mm-hmm. while playing with other
3: toddlers yesterday. Yeah. I
0: don't think a lot of people knew the it. real Marion
1: taping these programs for my mother was a form of activism she wanted people to be able to seek the real truth
2: you need to deal with people who ...are living a different reality than yours.
0: She was obsessed with how media reflects a society back to itself.
2: Those in power are able to write their own history.
4: A lot of craziness produces a lot of brilliance, and I think there's something kind of brilliant about what Marion Stokes did. ¶¶
5: Uh, good afternoon and welcome to Wanda's Picks, the Black Arts and Cultural Program of African Sisters Media Network. And that was the trailer uh, from The Recorder, the Marion Stokes Project, which is opening at the Roxy Theater um, on January 17th, um, this Friday. And it's going to have, um, I think it's going to be up through the 23rd. Am I, am I uh, remembering this correctly, Roger?
4: It starts, uh, yes. This Friday, the 17th, and uh, continues through to the 23rd, Thursday.
5: Okay. All right. Super. Yeah, and, and you, the voice of Roger McDonald, who is uh, the TV Archive Fellow at the um, Internet Archive, and uh, he's joined by Trevor Von Stein, a Systems Administrator, Archivist, and uh, Petabox. And uh, this particular film... Uh, sort of documents, and uh, not all of it, because uh, there's a whole lot more to go, but um, in the film, uh, the director um, has documented uh, Marion Stokes, who was born in 1929 and lived until 2012, so her life covered a whole lot of historic um epochs and uh, she famously recorded tv news 24 hours a day for 35 years and when she passed away in 2012 she left behind over 70,000 vhs tapes containing hours and hours of footage but she also left behind other documents her writings and other things she collected and so filmmaker matt wolf he set out to document this obsessive documentary I put obsessive in quotation marks uh, in his in this film <laughs> that we're talking about, and that we're going to be talking about today in the special broadcast recorder so let me let me read our our guest uh, bios, and then we can talk about how um, uh, the uh, the internet um, archive played such a strategic role in in preservation of you know these these artifacts um, that are not available outside of you know um uh miss stokes mrs Stokes, um you know uh, decision to to do this kind of archival work for pros- prosperity literally <laughs> so Trevor uh, was drawn to internet archives by the warm flickering glow of ephemeral television specifically the Marion Stokes Collection. However, he primarily builds and maintains a servers and storage infrastructure that keeps the petabytes safe and accessible. So, again, welcome, Trevor.
6: <laughs> Hello. Thanks for having me on your show. Uh, Hi. That is largely correct. Uh, I mostly spend my time working for the Internet Archive as a, a hardware systems administrator. Uh, we're passionate about doing things uh, very effectively on a limited non-profit budget. And uh, for us, that decision meant we host our own uh, cloud. It doesn't live in some mm. abstract cloud. It's, it's physically maintained in our own buildings.
5: Mm, nice, nice. And that's a, it's a very nice building, building and people can uh, get tours of the Internet Archive um, on Fridays at 1 o'clock. So you definitely should make that a part of your... Itinerary at some time in, in the near future. And Roger McDonald, Television Archive Fellow, joined the Internet Archive to help create an open digital public library of TV news, providing a means to thoughtfully reflect upon the most persuasive and uh, pervasive and persuasive medium of our time. Yeah, it still is, isn't it? Television has been around. How long has television been around?
4: Ooh. You know I can't say since uh um it's often considered to be invented here in san- in san francisco uh, mm. really oh, uh, I I know Farnsworth T. Oh, Farnsworth wow. although in you know recently in most inventions um there's considerations about who was the exact first but uh um He's often credited as being the inventor of it.
5: Mm, wow. Wow. Oh, that's good. That's interesting. I didn't know that. That. that story. Um. Television's been around a while, but I know it hasn't been around forever. And and it has changed over time. I remember when television used to go off, just like the radio used to go off <laughs> at a particular time. Um. I mean, it's before my time, but I I I've, I've you know I know people that remember that and um and i thought that's that's pretty good to be able to like get a break from that interference <laughs> um <laughs> but now it's like 24/7 it's like and people like leave their television's on when they're going to sleep just so they don't miss anything in their sleep i'm like wow that is that is really something um <laughs> so Roger so, uh, uh oh, hmm, go ahead
6: please continue ah uh, go on
5: Oh, you, you write in your bio that uh, there's certainly no coincidence that uh, you've spent the previous 11 years helping to manage the nation's largest independent non-commercial TV uh, network, Link TV. And prior to co-founding the network devoted to global news and culture in 1999, you helped create and manage several other organizations engaged in addressing international challenges, often through media including the Gobertroff Foundation. Your favorite quote is, why don't you say your favorite quote?
4: <laughs> Be ashamed to die until you've won at least one victory for humanity. By the uh, founder of U.S. Public Education, noted abolitionist, uh, <laughs> abolitionist um, uh, and um, founder of Antioch College. Mm-hmm. Of which I'm an alum.
5: You are? Wow, holy mm-hmm. man. Wow, mm-hmm. really? Where's Antioch College?
4: Well, it's uh, in a small village in southwestern Ohio, in the village of Yellow mm-hmm. Springs.
5: Oh, I've heard of Yellow Springs. Okay. Oh, wow. So you seem like, you know, you've been on this path for a long time, right, philosophically? Yes. yes. Mm-hmm wow wow yeah so so, maybe we could talk a little bit about Marion Stokes, you know, this woman with a mission, like literally and and she just kept it going, She was really focused <laughs> on documenting uh the news and programs on television, like she was a real visionary, um, and it sort of makes you sort of question the whole idea of you know people's collections. And the values that some collections are called collections, and 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 seem worthy to have been collected, and then there are other collections that are called trash, or and the people are not called visionary, they're called hoarders. So, <laughs> so I was going to talk a little bit about this woman uh, who was a librarian and uh, a really um, provocative thinker, and had a lot of foresight. Around, around the use of, of information, particularly public information, and, um, and also what was available to the public and how things could disappear that were once available.
4: That's right. She knew what many of us uh, sort of archivists and librarians know that it's vital to um, preserve the past and make it accessible that others might learn from it and uh, uh, reflect on it and perhaps um, not be condemned to repeat it. But Marion Stokes was this, this somewhat unique person. She was exceedingly driven, as you say. She was also very concerned, as a social justice advocate among others, um, about government surveillance. She spent most of her life um, um, trying to avoid such so that even her decades-long um, dedication to preserving uh, television and television news in particular, she made uh, great efforts not to let anybody on the outside know what was going on. She thought it was vital to, uh, to preserve it. Um, and thankfully, um, her family, after she died in 2012, uh, reached out to find a great home for her archives of over seventy-one thousand individual video cassettes, um, with multiple news programs on each, sometimes on multiple dates, um, which she and and some of her helpers carefully inscribed uh, on the spines of each video cassette what was contained therein. Mm
3: hmm.
5: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trevor, talk about how how you you come to the uh, archive because um, you literally follow the work there. <laughs>
6: uh, yes, you, you. Thank you for reading my uh, uh, bio as an intro. Um, that that drawn to the warm, flickering glow of television sensation. Um, <laughs> I, I grew up in a household with very limited access to television. And uh, Marion started recording, I don't believe, 24 hours a day initially, but uh, certainly made a daily practice of it by the Iran hostage crisis in the late 1970s, in 1979, uh, which is around the time I was born. And so I had this thought before I ever showed up to visit the Internet Archive, uh, that the years of recording that she had done were pretty much the entirety of the years that I had grown up without access to television. I find I find it myself very drawn to it. Uh, it's helpful to have them mm-hmm. off in a room if I wish to have a conversation. Um, so yes, I, I found myself uh, looking for something to do uh, as a volunteer, altruistic activity, and I. I don't know, just showed up at the Internet Archive having heard that they received this collection and thought, I'd like to help. Um, and the first thing that I did for that collection was she had recorded onto a very early uh, a beta format uh, broadcast that she had done in the late 1960s and early 70s, uh, a Philadelphia Public Access panel discussion show. I guess not public access, it was proper CBS. Um, uh, That was a panel discussion show featuring lots of civil rights activists and uh, community leaders. And and it were unbelievably uh, well-informed discussions that were were productive and thoughtful. And uh, we, we had these incredibly poor quality beta copies of them in grainy grainy green and browns um definitely it was color but uh, she had had them transcribed at some point but she had also saved all of the masters from the recording studio and ampex one inch format and a weird variant of it that was a high pass filter uh that took us a couple years to find an appropriate party who could play those back safely for us and that's uh that's part of the material you see in the documentary uh, recorder.
3: Uh, mm-hmm.
6: And more than that, uh, the, the programs that she did uh, featured many people who weren't necessarily known for what they became known for later in life. Uh, so, so contemporaneous footage of uh, uh, activists and, uh, well, future politicians and, and future <laughs> civil rights leaders, uh, at, present ones at the time, and people whose records and, and life's work went unknown for most of their life. And there might not be much in the way of recorded material about them, were it not for uh, Marion saving these tapes. Um, yeah. It, it's very mm-hmm. interesting to me to, to, to find such footage that otherwise wouldn't have made it into the historical record. Um, there weren't references to this woman's work and activities. And, and she, she had been the uh, first chapter president for National Organization of Women for Philadelphia. Uh, she was an active communist leader. Uh, she had been an editor for multiple newspapers. Uh, she, she organized the buses for the March on Washington, that went from Philadelphia to DC to hear Martin Luther King speak. And you know she, she saved records and um, torn ticket stubs of who had attended uh, uh, rallies and meetings that she helped organize. She was uh, a quiet and industrious participant in civil rights discourse and somebody who actively did not seek the attention that we are now subjecting her history to. Uh, <laughs> But it's worth knowing. <laughs> not, not everybody ends up uh, a famous historical leader. Some people want to toil a little bit behind the scenes and make good uh, help for the world or try to live out their full human potential, like Marion would have said.
3: Okay.
5: Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering um, if you want to give some of those names of people that were uh, relatively unknown but na- then, um, but now are, are really famous, oh. you know, um, activists, politicians, et cetera. Certainly. Uh,
6: uh, I, I think the one that most comes to mind, or I, I think was maybe one of the most impactful, was uh, a Haverford physics professor named Bill Davidoff. And he, he was a really quiet and well-mannered, and uh, he, he talked on the program about astrophysics. But around 1971, or 1970 into 1971, he and, his, uh, and a cohort of his friends dropped out of peaceful civil rights activities and created a secret cell. They thought that the peaceful civil rights activities that they were involved in were being subverted by the FBI. And they decided to go about to prove it. And they, their, their cell organized a break-in of the FBI offices in Media, Pennsylvania, carefully stole all the documents, uh, made copies and distributed them to members of Congress and the press. And almost all of those copies immediately were returned to the FBI. But the Washington Post published them. And the documents led to a, 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 FOIA, a FOIA Act request um, that revealed the existence of Pro and it led to the church committee hearings and um, mm-hmm. this cell of people went their whole lives long past statute of limitations for prosecution uh, unnamed they always they, they had gotten away with it um, but the the FBI surveillance that came down upon Philadelphia in the early 1970s I think is a big part of why Marion herself became much more private and less participatory and I'm not saying Perfect. that she had any role in the citizens. Commission to Investigate Oh, Trevor, the FBI, we can't hear you
5: anymore.
6: But... Oh, no. Uh-oh. Hey. I'm am i This is Roger, there?
4: and I'm, I'm hearing can Trevor you hear me as well. Hello? Can, can you hear me? Hello? Can you hear me? Well, I suspect for those who are listening that Wanda Hello, may not be... Oh, no. But...
6: Let me call back...
4: Uh those who are continuing to listen in, this is Roger MacDonald. Um, I'm a uh, TV Archive fellow. I founded the Television Archive at the Internet Archive. And Trevor was just explaining about oh. uh, one of the remarkable Roger? personages. Yes. Mm-mm. And Wanda is a, trying to reach me, but I am speaking without her hearing. And I thought I'd fill up this empty space, um, so that you listeners might still get an understanding of what the uh, remarkable collection of of television Marion Stokes oh. created that the Internet Archive holds. We have some 71,000 individual video cassettes. Hello? Some of which we've digitized. Oh, my. And others, I most of the hear others... I guess. Most of the oh, no. others can... So apparently, Wanda cannot hear us, but Trevor and I can hear each other. So that appears um, to be the I, case. I was just explaining to those who may be still be listening that though we've digitized some, and the filmmakers have digitized, uh, worked with us to digitize others, the vast majority of the collection remains undigitized, and it'll it'll take a considerable amount of resources, we estimate upwards to $2 million, and at least two or three years of concerted effort um, to bring this whole collection back uh, to life and accessible online to all kinds of researchers um, and the public who can explore it. We hope to do so in a manner similar to the Television Archive's TV News Archive, where you can go to it, archive.org, TV. In those cases, we repurpose closed captioning as a search index. So right now, you could go and search the last 10, 11 years of all national U.S. television news and local news from select regions. And it's that kind of approach we hope to take uh, when digitized to the vast collection of Marion Stokes. Now I'm going to pause Hoping that Wanda may have joined us back online. Uh,
5: let's see. Um,
4: but it doesn't appear
6: so. So let me continue on. I, I yeah I, yeah I'm I'm back on
5: another phone. <laughs>
6: oh, hi Wanda. Uh, we hear you with some echo and reverb.
5: Oh wow! Can you hear me better now?
6: Yeah, I hear you just fine now. Oh, yes.
5: Okay. Yeah, I had to. Gosh, it's so weird. I'm, I'm supposed to be in the studio, but I can't hear you all. Okay. And I don't know if I should hang up and try it again, because I'm scared that well, we, I might lose everybody. But um, we continue talking uh, I think we all hear each other now.
6: Were...
5: Okay, cool. Alrighty, super. Man, I missed missed that long, great answer.
6: Shoot. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I, I cut mine off, and I I hung up and redialed in, actually. And Roger uh, has continued uh, describing uh, some of the scale of the project, uh, Mm -hmm. the cost we anticipate, and and how we wish to integrate it with uh, our main television archive that's uh, www.archive.org slash TV. Okay, super.
5: Thanks. Yeah, I was um I was thinking about some of the uh some of the trends that are are uh that one can can recognize because of the large sample of work that um that Mrs. Stokes um collected for us. And and I was just thinking about when I was watching some of the things that she recorded, I'm like, you know, police brutality and excessive use of force just, you know, going way back coming forward. I'm like, Whoa, look at all this. And then, you know, that she, you know, documented what happened to the move organization in Philadelphia when, you know, when the government bombed the whole city block, like, Oh my goodness. And it still looks like, I mean it hasn't still hasn't come back cuz I've I've been there more recently and um and you could tell there's something horrific happened there and it's almost like uh nobody wants to live there anymore. It looks like one of those old west um you know when when everybody's inside because there's getting ready to be a shootout. It sort of looks like mm-hmm. that
4: on on Osage Street still. Yeah. You know there's the television has been relatively opaque to um, analysis. They're just the archives are just not public. They don't exist. There's a great television mm-hmm. news archive at Vanderbilt University that goes mm-hmm. back to 1968, but those are mm-hmm. just the evening news programs of what used to be the signature um, uh, news programs of ABC, NBC, and CBS in the evenings. But the advent of of more pro more news programming, weekend news programming, and then the um, rollout of the cable networks has it has been inaccessible. So, we at the Internet Archive and others have been making incremental progress towards demonstrating how you could open this up in our digital domain for widespread search. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting elements that comes to mind when you the value of being able to reflect back on news stories of, of our past um, is a a group called Retro Report at RetroReport.org. They utilize archi- archives and others. Um, they are journalists and documentarians who at least once a week um, create a 15-minute or so mini-doc looking at a um, at a major story of our past through now the lens of hindsight to be able to reflect back on what we got so wrong and what we got mm-hmm. right and how, um, how those stories have have evolved. Um, and their, their work has been really exceptional, uh, particularly at pointing out things that uh, sort of an underlying meta stories of how News and reactions to news are driven by underlying uh, prejudices and predispositions to fear. Uh, Perhaps one of the best pieces was on uh, on the so-called crack baby epidemic, um, Mm. which turned out to be not so. (laughs) There was no no clinical association of hyperactivity or any other um, uh, towards effects on babies, Born of the, of crack users, but back mm-hmm. in the day in the eighties, once that term crack babies was utilized it uh, the fear and concern that an entire generation of of mostly African Americans were going to be disabled and thus uh, dependent upon social services it just mm-hmm. swept the nation, and laws and many other things resulted that of that really caused a great deal of harm. And mm-hmm. aside from retro report, nobody mm. has gone back and reflected on, wait a minute, was that reporting accurate? When did we realize that it was inaccurate? So mm. just one of, of, of a number of, of, um, of indications of the value of looking back at the uh, stories of our past. Um, so I that we might thoroughly not be championed in the, into retro the reports. Um
6: a, a couple of my favorite Retro Report episodes have been about the history of uh, how we ended up with a more militarized police force, the how, how SWAT teams came to be a, a, a phenomenon in this country, mm. Um, mm. And, and how we sort of slowly walked our way there. Um,
4: uh,
6: <clears throat> or um, the history of the Super Predator uh, was a an idea when I was a child in the nineties that that was something that news talked about and, and how did we end up with that as a or three strikes laws. So, um they, they they're they're a really amazing documentary series. Oh
5: um, wow. Great yeah I definitely have to
3: look them up. Wow, mhm.
5: Yeah. I was just thinking, you know, back when you were talking about the crack babies and um and mothers who um were were you know addicted to some kind of substance like you know cocaine or something that would um you know sort of adversely affect you know the unborn uh, child and and how the women would a lot of times uh be imprisoned i remember under george w bush women were incarcerated because of exposing their unborn child to these substances and so they went to prison, and the child went to child to uh, foster care, or, or or put
4: up for adoption. Yeah, there were terrible consequences of fear, mm-hmm. driven by prejudice and unmediated by by science.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah, false science too. It Reminds me of the uh, you know they talked about how certain people had smaller brains. Um, you know, women, people of African descent, so then we weren't capable of, of certain kinds of thinking and, and certain kinds of positions in society because we, had, we were not biologically suited for, <laughs> for this kind, these kind of um, roles in, in the society.
4: Well, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, science um, is certainly has not been a, always a champion of, of, of logic and an unprejudiced perspective. Um, it too has a horrible history of of um, of grievous prejudice.
5: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But we going back to um, you know to Marion and this wonderful collection. Um, yes. You know she I uh, was reading that she she didn't go back and watch you know what she recorded. She just kept on moving forward. Um, but she was you know sort of really really clued into to trends particularly around investment opportunities um i don't know if you talked about you know her uh, early support of apple and um and and the wealth like she was a wealthy woman um but she was also you know a philanthropist because it seemed like she invested <laughs> uh her resources into you know this documentary work um but also i want to um, talk about that but then i want to also go back to um to the uh, the show inputs and, and and her her husband um, John Stokes.
4: Trevor, would you like to speak to her Apple investments or?
6: Uh,
4: well, um, how, do I start, how do
6: I start with that? Uh, I, I believe she <laughs> was um, already thoroughly savvy as a financial uh, 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 you know investor. Um, way back into the mid 1970s and Apple came, around at, Apple came around at a time when she was already working on this project and had already purchased several personal computers and found them very difficult and frustrating. And the, the, the passion and the joy and the sort of artistry of it and Steve Jobs's personal story of having been an orphan as well. Uh, really spoke to her, and she, well, I I think she did the the classic uh, Warren Buffett sort of investing, and she she bought what she knew and believed in, Um, Mm. and it ended up being a very good investment. Uh, She would regularly have uh, meetings with her lawyers and investors at a uh, nearby uh, cafe, and uh, everybody in the restaurant knew to be very deferential to her, she wanted her to be her privacy and have a meeting in an off spot. They always knew to get her, her martini and um, and she would boss around and berate them and then hop back into a limousine, drive around town and get dropped off less than a block away and uh, always tried to r- remain a very private person um, and have her meetings face to face and direct. Uh, her son tells me that she would never have an important conversation in a room that had a telephone and that she never had a cell phone until the introduction of the iPhone. Mm. Ah,
0: Uh, When
6: she died, there was a a collection of more than 200 Macintosh computers representing Mm. the the whole history of the company. Um, Mm. Every peripheral, every additional software package, um, she had been very generous with her old computers and given them away a to, to, to new homes or bought, you work for me now, you must have a great iBook, or um, made sure her grandchildren got computers immediately before they could use them. Um, uh, she was passionate about Apple computers, that is for sure. Uh, there were large collections of dollhouses and dollhouse furniture, there were oh. tens of thousands of books in her home. She was a, a an avid reader as well as a, a television watcher.
5: Hmm. Wow. Wow. What do we know? What do we know of her? Um, her home life. Um, was she an orphan? If I remember correctly. Uh,
6: what I understand of her story is that she was born uh, about a month before the stock market crash in 1929 and mm-hmm. she was given away to another family in her church parish and raised wow. by them. Mm-hmm. And um, I-, I believe she found out many years later that her mother who had given her away had later had other children. And I think she felt a deep sense of hurt about that is, is what we can infer. Um, mm-hmm. But she's a very self-made woman. Um, she pursued her own education. Uh, she had a, an independent career. She, she fought actively for the causes she believed in. Um, it was a very admirable American story.
5: Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk more about about um, you know her her television show, which was. I mean, wow! It was simply phenomenal, um, and it's it's so great that we can we can watch you know some of the shows uh, shows on in the film. I I just think, and we could talk more about um, you know Matt Wolf's. Um, I, I think he it took him like four or five years to to complete the film. I mean, there's a lot of material that he went through. I don't know how much of the archives, you know, the seventy thousand. Oh that he used that he went through to be able to make the film. Maybe you could tell us about that. Um, but it's just well, really biggest, a wonderful representation of, of, um, of her life and work. Uh,
6: the entirety of Marion Stokes's, uh, uh, show that she was participant of in from 68 to 1971, uh, mm-hmm. is available on archive.org with, uh, Beautiful quality from the original One Inch Masters. And and Mm -hmm. those are free for anybody to use, we believe. Um, And I'm sorry, please prompt me again. What was the continuation of the question? Oh, Oh. oh, I mean, that's really great. Uh, So so (laughs) there there were 64 episodes of it, and we, we have video for 61 of them and audio for a further four there was one uh, audio only recording that was listed as uh, uh, declined to air or, or not for broadcast. Um, mm-hmm. And I believe it was a, the, the topic was black power and it oh. was not aired in 1969. Um, but, but we have an audio only of that um, from a, a quarter inch audio reel. She, she had the, the audio masters as well stashed away. Um, mm-hmm. The hardest part about dealing with a collection of this size, well, the first estimates were over 200,000 tapes. Um, we, we didn't actually know very well what we had. Uh, it was pallets, shipping containers. Um, it had been seven storage lockers scattered around the Philadelphia area previous to this. Um, correlating it all together and... <clears throat> being able to build a catalog based on photographs of all the tapes and spines. Um, it was a, a large uh, text transcribing effort just to, to know what we have. Uh, and, and part of the difficulty of, uh, for the filmmakers was instead of being able to, to, to provide them with a large undifferentiated sampling, um, we, we, we wanted to be able to give them specific days and broadcasts channels um so working with the filmmakers we built uh, a catalog so that we could better understand the collection and be able to pull out individual materials uh, otherwise um they had been packed away very haphazardly uh, uh, as in her home life the, the the tape collection would would pile onto the floor and then take over the table next to it and periodically, uh, her caretakers and her husband would would pack them up and put them into storage, uh, just to make sanity of, of the house.
5: Oh wow! Um, yeah. Um, so the this particular show um, that now I know it's available. I can watch them all. Oh, that's cool. And listen to the others. <laughs> yes. Oh, that is if so you awesome.
4: To, you can um, see and hear the show at, at the Internet, <clears throat> Internet Archive. And if you go to archive.org and search for input, Marion Stokes, you'll find the entire collection um, as well as a, um, as a section of research materials That'll give you um, information on who was in the shows, what the topics were, um, and background on each. It, it is a remarkable um, television program that she did, as Trevor said, on the CBS affiliate in Philadelphia mm-hmm. from 68, 69, 70, and a little 71. I may be mistaken about the 68, but uh, for at least 69, 70, 71. Mm -hmm. Another one of the people that she had on it that turned out to be um, – turned out at the time was seemingly inconsequential but went on to make – have great consequence was a a psychiatrist, John Fryer. Um, He later um, became renowned for giving an anonymous speech with a mask on before the 1972 American Psychiatric Association. Um, denouncing psychiatry's treatment of homosexuality, and he came out as gay. Um, and this speech is is often credited, and his other work, for really turning the American Psychological Association around and getting them to um, delist homosexuality as a mental illness. Um, he, you know, made some really remarkable contributions um, and, and people now can g- reflect back on, on um, uh, to see who he was before that happened or a little snippet of what he had before that happened um, this is you know one of the elements of of archives and librarians we, we often get the question so what do you want to preserve? What's most important to preserve? And one of the things that we know f- over the thousand years of, of hoarding and collecting that it's important to try to get everything you can, because you can't predict in the future for the future's sake, what now is going to be important to the future. Um, so the, the fact that Marion diligently, um, uh, collected so much of, of television news and other programming that she liked. She was a big fan of, of Star Trek. Um, mm-hmm. The documentary <laughs> film is, is so worth seeing uh, because it describes her unique attributes, some of which were clearly visionary, some of which she was really cranky and difficult to get along with. Um, and uh, it is the... The documentary provides just a re- remarkable window into this this unique woman's life um, where you see she did things of great – that are really enviable and worthy of great respect. Um, and sometimes she treated people in an incredibly cringeworthy fashion, all of which goes into making up um, who she was.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 we um you know we look at you know her son Michael, you know who who speaks about uh you know he and his mother's relationship and then you you see what happened um because of some decisions that his mother made around his own relationship with his father and 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 you know there are things that happen that you know you can't re- you can't recover from in so far as you can't undo certain things that were done and you know and he was a child so he you know he couldn't necessarily tell his mother what to do and so um so that that was um you know when we learned that story um you know it's kind of you know um regretful but then you know we look at you know their travel you know in Europe and um that you know that's great you know seeing Cause she seemed like she always had a camera. I think, I think you mentioned that Trevor, how she took, she had like a camera that she carried with her. And so she was actually documenting herself. Uh,
6: There's 20 or 25 super eight reels. um, Mm -hmm. That were part of the family archive that we, Mm -hmm. uh, we we digitized and made available for filmmakers. Uh, most of them are, uh, uh, you know, I think, I think photography and home movies were of a different, um, purpose than, than our iPhones are today. Um, they were not so much casual moments as they were, uh, Christmas morning or, um, uh, uh a, a big, important holiday where they'd buy a number of, of uh, you know, cassettes for a super eight, um, a couple of scenes from home life, but but very few. Um, I think photography was still really special and and rare at that point, um, and pri- a privilege to be able to do. Um, there are very few photographs of of her uh, <clears throat> from a lot of her adult life, mm-hmm. uh, and certainly decreasing as they went on.
5: Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, really lovely when we um we we see her um having um a meal with uh some of her caretakers and um and and they're talking about um just sort of what she was like and and just sort of how she was able to come full circle insofar as her relationships with others, um, you know, um, you know, once once her husband Past. I just wanted you to talk a little bit about, um, um, you know, the love of her life, and how that was that, that was so beautiful. Uh,
6: you know, John Stone he, he, he is also featured prominently in the input series. He was one of the original producers. Oh, right. And he's, uh, he's he's an exceedingly gentle man. He's usually wearing a light gray suit. Um, He spoke with uh, lots of hand gestures, um, and he was passionate about botany and religion. Um, uh, The input series came out of a a group called Wellsprings Ecumenical, which was an interfaith uh, group, sort of something that came out of Vatican II, of of trying to uh, reach hands across the aisles and, and with other churches, and so it was a grouping of people who were Spiritually minded, but from all different faiths, um, and talking about that as well as talking about issues, but just from their perspective. And his very much came out of uh, a love of botany and uh, Christianity. He had been uh, a very, hmm, he had been a pacifist during World War Two, and he had decided not to fight for any cause, um, and, and uh, or, that's right the wrong way of explaining it, he had decided not to fight in in the war, and was first sent to a work camp from which he escaped, and later uh, served the remainder of World War II in uh, Danbury Penitentiary, which was purpose-built for peaceful objectors. Um, He was allowed to tend a garden there, and uh, that really is what uh, inspired his love of of, uh, flowers.
5: Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking when you said about his interest in gardening, and I was thinking about, you know, those gardens that, um, the Victory Gardens um, that uh, people had, um, I think it was World War II as well. And then also I was thinking about the Prison Garden Project, um, which is uh, at a few few prisons, maybe more than a few in California, but specifically at San Quentin and, and just sort of how, being uh, in the earth and being able to grow things uh, that that are both decorative and and, uh, nutritious is is within itself uh, a way to, to I guess, to reinforce one's humanity but also to heal one.
6: That's beautifully said. Mm -hmm. But I can see its value in a new way now.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah.
5: Oh, wow. Well, yeah, because you just think about, you know, I mean, well, actually, I've never been incarcerated, but just think about sort of the trauma of being locked up, right? But just being able to have that release, to be able to guide, to grow something, it seems <laughs> like that would be really inspiring um, to a person that is is contained in a way that something wild is not.
4: You don't want to you. Uh, mentioned at the outset that this um, this documentary film recorder, the Marion Stokes Project, is going to be opening up this um, Friday in San Francisco and running through Thursday. Well, the first showing Friday night at 6:45, I'm going to be there and we'll be answering anybody's uh, uh, questions afterwards, and I'll be doing the same after the 4 p.m. show on Saturday. Um, so for those who who are intrigued by um, what you hear now and want to go see the doc, um, I'm <laughs> sure you'll have a bunch of questions afterwards, which um, I'll do my best to address them and at least point you in the direction of where to find answers if I'm unaware of them.
5: Mm, right. Yeah. Thank you. And, um, and this is at the big
4: Roxy, right? I believe – it's at it's at the it's at the Roxy Theater on 16th Street at uh, Valencia in San Francisco. Right, that's, yeah, that's it. Yeah. I believe only the Saturday showing
6: is at the Big Roxy.
4: The, uh Oh, I think most the of the screenings next
6: theater. week are at the Small Roxy, the Little Roxy, rather.
5: Okay. Okay, cool. Super. Yeah, and um I was wondering, um, Trevor, uh, maybe in closing, if you could maybe uh, tell us about some of these things that you learned about uh, Marion that are not in the film that you shared with me when I was at the archives and showed me some lovely, lovely, a lovely painting, um, um, you know, done by her, her first husband. Cause she, she was married three times. And um, yeah. And, and anything else you might have learned about her that, that you really treasure um, that you might want to share with us now.
6: Um, we know that Marion Stokes was uh, a, a, an avowed communist and uh, through much of the 1950s participated in socialist newspapers and in being a pamphleteer. Uh, we have a, a rather extensive collection of samples of uh, five-cent pamphlets about why the United States should not interfere with Guatemala's foreign policy or why we should get out of Nicaragua or Iran. Um, we have correspondence from Marion Stokes to and from uh, police chiefs in Washington and in Philadelphia. She organized protests and would complain to cops if uh, they, didn't get pr- peaceful, or they didn't get protection their peaceful protest or wrote a, a letter complimenting um, the uh, police chief of Langley, Virginia for uh, their very good uh, coverage of, of uh, uh, public defense when they were protesting against the CIA. Um, Marion, uh, it, appears to, ha- it uh, appears to have been fired from the Free Library of Philadelphia for her political views, and she and her husband at the time, her, her second husband, uh, Michael Medelitz's father, Melvin, um, they planned to defect to Cuba and join the revolution there. Uh, they flew to Guadalajara uh, with Michael, and he he and they they, they attempted to to uh, join the revolution on the island, and were never able to. Uh, plot a route, really. It was after Bay of Pigs and immigration was uh, was not allowed. There were parts of Marion's life that they, at some point, had sought to hide. Um, There was a large collection of this collection of of socialist propaganda and their books on the subject were all stored inside of a, a sealed up, walled off Crawl space in one of their homes um, that was really uncovered only after she died. Um, there had been a part of her history that she had kept, but kept very private.
5: Oh wow! Yeah, thank you, thank you. Yeah, and and Roger.
4: Yeah.
5: Um. Uh, closing thoughts about about. You know the recorder, the Marion Stokes Project about what you do and and now sort of how how rich you know this collection has has made you know our nation and anyone who has access you know to the internet um and sort of how this is in keeping with the um the goals and the mission of the archives in the first place, oh and then lastly, um if you want to talk about costs. Uh, Marion was rich, and I don't know if any of her money has gone to the archive to be able to do the work that you've done with, um, you know, documenting, uh, not documenting, but you know, archiving this work so that it is does have it has a an a life on on the uh, internet.
4: But I was just wondering if
5: you could could maybe talk about that too.
4: Absolutely. Well, um, while you were inadvertently off the phone. I mean, off the, the call, um, I went on to continue to describe um, the dimensions and where we're at, um, having oh. just scratched the surface of the, the digitization of the 71,000 plus individual video cassettes. We are estimating that it'll take almost $2 million and at least a couple of years of concerted efforts to do this. And we've been, this is not something that the Internet Archive. Um, does uh, well. That is the digitization of a massive collection like this. We are do digitization of massive collections of books uh, pretty darn well, and are increasing that uh, at this very moment. But we're um, looking for an, and think we've identified an outside nonprofit who could take over the project of managing um, the uh, the digitization of these tapes that would be done by um, other professionals um, around the country. Um, We haven't started raising the money uh, yet for that, um, but we're right on the brink of doing so. And we'd love to hear from anybody who thinks, particularly after seeing the documentary, thinks that they might like to help um, be engaged and help raise some, uh, some funds to bring this massive collection to the public. Now, the Internet Archive, as perhaps most of your listeners know, we're available at archive.org. We're a digital library whose mission statement is really ambitious, as all mission statements should be, um, but it's something we really take to heart, and that is universal access to all knowledge for free. Um, So we have collections of... Uh, millions of texts, of billions of web pages, of vast software collections, of the television news archive. Um, we have a great collection of uh, of film, most of which are in the public domain. Uh, quite a significant collection of of music and live and live and recordings of live concerts. Uh, most renowned of which is the, the collection of Grateful Dead concerts. Um, so we're scholars and librarians who are dedicated to opening up media in this digital world for, um, for access, for discovery, for knowledge, for reflection, for scholarship. Um, and we'd love to welcome anybody to come to the site and explore for what you need. And Wanda, you mentioned um we give a tour every just about every Friday, um, at one PM from our headquarters, which are at three hundred Funston Avenue in San Francisco. It's in the Richmond district. And the building is a former Christian science church. It looks very, very archive from the outside. <laughs> Yes, it does.
5: <laughs> and that's an interesting story, too, um, how the logo precedes the building. Um, <laughs> yeah, wow, wow. Yeah, so um, uh, the question about about um, Marion Stokes' family's uh, monetary contribution, do you have oh, yeah. to, yeah, did they contribute oh, anything so. or does a person – have to have anything to contribute if they have something that they want to donate or have digitized and made available to um, uh, the Internet Archive?
4: Well, the Internet Archive always welcomes donations of content um, to digitize, including books. Uh, The Stokes family, a portion of the Stokes family has been very generous um, in donations that have helped us uh, come this far and for the planning process of really how to uh, to do the whole thing. So they've been able to contribute enough to uh, get us kick-started, um, and, uh, but we really need to look um, much farther uh, t- to look for, the, for financial contributions that will help us digitize this vast collection. Right.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Wow welcome congratulations.
4: Also like add,
6: oh, oh yes if mm-hmm. i might i would also like to add that anybody is welcome to add content to our archive uh, that's already digital um at archive.org/upload and uh, you you can add a video you can add a self published book um i made sure all my my personal home family movies are are on there uh and a number of coworkers have done the same but uh but we we do accept contributions of your individual cultural creative outputs. Um, uh, Many podcasts and radio stations use us as where they keep their archives. Um,
4: Mm -hmm. We're a a public resource. I'm so glad Trevor mentioned that. Um, So if you've got anything digital and you'd like to donate it to the world to be available to everybody forever for free, go to archive.org and hit the upload button, and if it's already digital, um, we'll upload it and add as much metadata as you can to describe the collection so that others can uh, do their best, uh, have an advantage of being able to find it.
5: Oh, that's great. So I could do that with my shell.
4: Absolutely.
5: Oh, that would be can. super.
4: Yeah,
5: I think I will start working on that. I've got over 10 years. (laughs) It'll take a minute. (laughs) Well, we welcome it. Oh, wow. It's been such a pleasure, you know, getting to know um, the uh, Internet Archive through the recorder. You know, Marion Stokes is still at it, right, Even, even in her next realm. Isn't that cool?
4: It is really cool.
5: Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure we she's like smiling and loving it.
4: <laughs>
6: I, I, so I understand one of the first things that Marion loved to do when she got a computer and, and got on the internet was uh, she would she would scan in whole books herself with flatbed scanner. She would uh, take a screen grab. That's so, uh, Command Shift Three. And she'd she'd save pictures statically of web pages she visited. I think she would have loved uh, the Internet Archive and the Wayback Machine. Uh, she would have understood <laughs> immediately what the purpose of this project was. Yeah.
3: Nice. Wow. <laughs>
6: cool. Super.
5: Well, I just want to thank you both so much for for this wonderful conversation. Um, I think everything might have been covered. Is there anything that we didn't cover, that, um, you know, I, I'm going to definitely go back and listen to what transpired <laughs> uh, when I was trying to get back in.
4: Uh, no, just just take a look at the, go, go to the Roxy, go to the, take a look at the documentary. Um, I think you'll be, if you've listened this far into the uh, podcast, I think you'll be really intrigued.
5: Mm, yeah, the film is is really awesome. And uh, yeah, I'm really, really happy that it's having a theatrical, um, you know, run, you know, in, in various places. And, you know, it's going to be, you know, at the Roxy for a minute, which is really, really cool. Um, the Roxy is a wonderful um, nonprofit, you know, you know, cinema in San Francisco that's got a wonderful history of its own. And, um yeah, and it's located at 3117 16th Street, and the phone number there is 415-863-1087. So, yeah, you don't mm-hmm. want to miss it, it's particularly, um, you know, when you're going to be there, right, just so people can ask you questions and, you know, and sort of find out, you know, some of the other stories that maybe didn't make it, and, yeah, and then, and then be all inspired to go to the Internet Archive and just learn more. About this collection yes. and watch the films, watch the shows and things like that. Yes.
4: Roxy.com. Mm-hmm.
5: Right. <laughs> all righty. Will you all take good care? Thanks again for this wonderful conversation.
4: It's a pleasure to Thank join you. you all.
5: Okay. Peace and blessings. Let's see. So we're gonna conclude with uh, an interview that I found with um the director and uh was online and uh I think it will sort of um give us another um opportunity to hear more about this this wonderful uh woman and her work. Let's see
3: i'm scrolling
5: (laughs) oh here we are okay um so this is um this interview with matt wolf and it was um uh it was uh The interview was was, was, uh, moderated by Mackenzie Fagan of Brick TV, Um, and uh, so going to play that now.
7: Like any child of the 90s, I had a robust collection of movies recorded from the TV onto VHS tapes. There was Annie, complete with commercial breaks from McDonald's Happy Meals and sunkissed kissed fruit gummies, and the seasonal favorite, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. There was A League of Their Own and Fried Green Tomatoes, and to no one's surprise, I now date women. Marion Stokes also recorded TV onto VHS tapes, except she did it 24 hours a day on multiple channels for 35 years. When she passed away in 2012, she left behind over 70,000 VHS tapes containing countless hours of footage. Filmmaker Matt Wolfe set out to document this obsessive documenter in his new film, Recorder, The Marion Stokes Project, which will premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival later this month. Matt, welcome to Woman 2BK. Thanks for having me. What was the news event that started this, or why did Marion start recording in this fashion? I know in the film you talk about how At first, it was because she liked Star Trek, and maybe she missed an episode and wanted to catch up on it later. But what was the impulse that set her off on this trajectory of recording news all the time?
1: Well, it was really the Iranian hostage crisis in 1979. So many people and scholars consider this the birth of the 24-hour news cycle, but basically it was kind of a soap opera of television news about the hostage crisis and would the hostages come out and what political maneuvers were happening behind the scenes and conspiracies. And um, that's what really initiated the television show Nightline. And Nightline proved to be this big hit that could compete and stand up against you know, late night Johnny Carson, et cetera. And so um, I think people started to recognize that there was an appetite for this kind of real-time news. And Marion saw that and um, she recognized that Um, news was becoming this kind of pervasive and persuasive medium, and she wanted to do something about it to protect the truth.
7: So many people across America are tuning in nightly. Why is Marion recording?
1: Um, I think she intuited that there was important information that was being lost, and she didn't want anything to be lost. She thought in order to protect the truth and, and to understand the bias and um, discrepancy in facts that was <coughs> happening that early in the reporting of television news, that there needed to be a definitive and comprehensive record. And little you know, little known to most people is that television stations didn't save all of their programs. They were discarding them in, you know, the tra- into the trash can of history. Um, but fortunately Marianne saved it. So it's a pretty unprecedented record of the news and and how it was represented on media, but also um, things like television commercials and talk shows and local programs and PSAs, things that might seem marginal or small, but that Marion recognized there was historical value to as well.
7: So let's zoom out a little bit and maybe tell me a bit about Marion and why she cared so much about protecting the truth, as you say.
1: Well, Marion was born around the Great Depression. Um, She went through the foster care system and was passed from family to family. Um, and when she kind of got older, she became a radical communist in the 1950s. Um, she was involved particularly in activism around Cuba um, and better understanding and sympathy for the Cuban revolution. Um, and that's at the point where she had a child and she became divorced and was a single mother. Um, so during that time as an activist, I think she was surveilled by the FBI like many communists of that period and. I think developed a, a kind of nuanced, multidimensional kind of picture of of um, politics and, and the representation of politics in the media. So in the 1960s, she took a job um, producing a local television show called Input. And it was there where she would meet her future husband, John Stokes, and um, I think it was there where she really came to understand the effect of media to affect uh, uh, public opinion. So these were kind of consciousness-raising sessions that she hosted. and. Um, I think that was a transformative experience that ultimately catalyzed the taping project.
7: Um, as somebody who hosts a local TV show, I am very into <laughs> the design of this show. Oh my input. God, it's
1: so good! They're right? like up
7: on like orange dioceses and they're they're facing antagonists. It's
1: beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful. They have these like elaborate wood stages, and um, it just shows like the kind of intention behind this thing. And it was kind of countercultural in a way. They would have ex-prisoners next to Pete Seeger, next to a secretary and a nun, and it just represented this diverse uh, kind of range of the public, and they had really dynamic and engrossing conversations.
7: We need more nuns on this show. Yeah, right. So we'll work on that. <laughs> um, so you mentioned that she was a communist, and she was being groomed as a leader of the communist party because she was African American, um, because she was incredibly intelligent and outspoken, um, and so the FBI had a file on her. Do you think that the fact that she was surveilled? any impact in what she then saw as her own surveilling of the media?
1: I think she was more concerned about doing her project privately because of that. Oftentimes we think of archives as really being institutional um, or having institutions of power kind of, um, you know, say this this is important to collect and we're going to do it. And she did that privately, which is really rare. And I think part of the reason she did it privately and kind of insisted on her privacy is because She had seen abuses of power, and she had been surveilled, and that that had an effect on her life.
7: So maybe we can show a clip from the movie. This is her secretary, I believe, who talks a little bit about who she was and what she was like.
1: Very
0: mysterious and very private. Her husband John would come out and talk to me, and I would speak to Marion through the door. She would open the door maybe an inch and talk to me. I would say it was three or four months before I actually met her. We were getting close to finishing their place, when they said they would like me to start working for them, helping them do things. I was kind of shocked because, uh, you know, I'd never, I guess, been with someone that had so much stuff. They had enormous amount of furniture and archives, magazines, books. She read about 11 newspapers a day and I don't think she ever threw one out.
7: So later in life she became fantastically wealthy. Tell me a little bit about how she found herself able to just record TV 24 hours a day.
1: It's very unexpected. When I first heard about her story I had no idea that she was fabulously wealthy and she lived in the kind of fanciest apartment building in Rittenhouse Square in Philadelphia. and. Marion, beyond being savvy about politics and the news, was a very gifted investor. And she recognized trends in media and technology very early and beyond just understanding them, she acted on them. So when Macintosh Computer released, um, when Apple released the Macintosh Computer in 1984, she acted and she became an avid investor and collector of Apple products. and. Through that and other technology and real estate investments, she became a very wealthy woman. She had married a man who came from wealth, um, but her investments and her savvy in the marketplace kind of enhanced that.
7: And you just referred to her as a collector. So it wasn't just the VHS tapes, the 70,000 VHS tapes. She collected Apple products. She collected newspapers, magazines. She had apartments filled with things. Um, And... One of your subjects in the film talks about the difference in history's eyes between hoarders and collectors. Can you make that, can you distinguish the difference between those for me?
1: Yeah, I really think it's, um, you know, who decides what's valuable. To some people, um, every single newspaper from the past 15 years is a value, and to other people it's just trash. So I think um, it's during Marianne's lifetime, a lot of what she was doing was kind of cast away as hoarding or pathological when, in fact, we now look at it and can recognize that there was insight behind it. So I think um, in terms of collecting, it's really in the uh, the eye of the beholder in terms of what's valuable to save.
7: Do we know if she ever went back and watched the tapes that she recorded, or did she just save them for posterity?
1: Yeah, she wasn't analyzing, editorializing, or interpreting the news. She was just capturing it. Of course, as an individual, she had her own point of view. And and kind of optics over the, the kind of mechanisms of news. But I think for her, it was more about creating a comprehensive and definitive archive so that people could use it in the future.
7: And worth mentioning that she started out as a librarian.
1: Exactly. So that
7: archival impulse is strong.
1: Yeah, she she had a career as a librarian, and then she took took it in inside, into the house.
7: Mm-hmm. And what happened after she passed away in 2012?
1: Well, as you can imagine, the task of kind of cleaning up this kind of project was – Overwhelming. And the film, in a lot of senses, is about Marion and her relationship with her son. And it was a complex and often kind of troubled relationship. But at the end of her life, she asked him um, to kind of be the executor of her estate and to make sure her life's work wasn't in vain. So Michael searched and searched for some home for these tapes. They put the 70,000 tapes into uh, storage pods. And there was part of them that thought, oh, you know, these are just going to be thrown away. But what happened is that they found the Internet Archive in San Francisco, which is a very unconventional library um, you know, that uh, agrees to digitize huge volumes and, and corpuses of analog collections with media. And so um, those storage pods were shipped across the country from Philadelphia to San Francisco. How many,
7: you create this kind of scaffolding against which her life plays out. So all of the major events from the late 70s up until her death, are are featured, as well as recurring themes, such as violence by the police against black people. Um, In some ways, it reminded me of Christian Mark the Clock, except Mm -hmm. instead of like every minute of the day, it was like every year.
1: Yeah, I wanted to create a kind of unconventional timeline. What I found going through the tapes is, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall was maybe less interesting than the fall of Miss America's pageant stage. Neither are in the film, but it was the kind of marginal histories or the forgotten local news stories. Um, things that people don't always think about or know about that were often the most interesting things that pointed back to Marianne. But I tried to treat well-known current events like nine eleven that all of us witnessed on television. I tried to show them through the guise of this archive in a new and unconventional way that makes you reconsider these experiences we've collectively had through television.
7: I mean, the nine eleven scene is stunning, if I may say. Thank you. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about it or if that's like a spoiler, uh, but if you feel comfortable talking about it, I would love for people to know about it.
1: Sure. I mean We show the minutes in which the news of 9-11 broke um, with four screens side by side. So you see in real time how each network started reporting the, the breaking news of 9-11. And what's disarming and uncanny is to see the, the kind of inane or you know, benign – programming on news that was happening before it It really shows you the flow of the 24-hour news cycle and how in real time all the news networks catch on like wildfire to something that's happening so it i think for everybody it puts them into a place where they remember the moment that they found out about that in real time and how we were all kind of viscerally connected through this moment and glued to the television
7: absolutely and it's these four quadrants and the top left is CNN, which has it before anyone else. And I- exactly what you said. It puts you in the moment of, there was a time before I knew about 9-11, and all of a sudden, I knew about 9-11.
1: Yeah, and everything was different, especially in the media. Everything was different from that point on. Yeah. I think there's other events like the Challenger, to some extent, the Iranian hostage crisis, that people experienced through television. Um, and it was a collective experience. Um, and... Um, I don't know if that happens as much today. Hopefully nothing like 9-11. But um, there are just a few things that we all know through television or JFK's Mm -hmm. assassination. So
7: much of the film is about who decides what's important, what makes it onto the news, how it's portrayed. Um, And about how we don't know what's important until afterwards often, which is why it's important to cast this wide net. And then we can go back through. Like I'm thinking of the moment where we see Kellyanne Conway, a young Kellyanne Conway in the 90s on the news, which at the time was like, oh, Kellyanne Conway. Now it's like, Kellyanne Conway.
1: Yeah, it's, that's what's so unique about the archive is uh, someone in the film says archives predict futures. It's kind of like, you know, so often we look to the past but um, to try to better understand today, but in terms of archives, it's, it's kind of impossible to know what from the past is going to be significant in the present or into the future. And that's, that is the rationale that guides archivists to, to collect everything is you never know what's going to be important.
7: It seems as if your own experience as the director of this film mirrors a little bit um, the experience of a news executive in that you had to decide what of this archive was important enough to make it into the film. How do you think your own point of view um, impacted the narratives and the the micro-narratives that you weave throughout this film?
1: Yeah, of course, as I'm speeding through that footage, as I mentioned, you know, 10 times pace, like... You know, I'm I'm marking things that just appeal to me aesthetically, content-wise, and of course, in various iterations of the film, there was lots of stuff that was really interesting to me or or tapped into my preoccupations and and fascinations. But I would have to stop myself and to think, Marion's a very mysterious woman. Um, we need to figure out how this material points to her and how she points to this material. So I really tried to s- sit in her her place and to try to think how a story might appeal or affect her as a viewer, given what I knew about her, her interests in in, um, the the mechanics of media, in um, communism and and the American government's relationship to it, into race and race politics, um, into technology and the emergence of new technology. um, These are things that were such big threads in her life. I tried to often choose stories that intersected with those subjects as well.
7: She does emerge as a very mysterious character. And I think I understand her motivations on a cerebral level, but there's this other storyline that I don't quite understand, which is that um, she didn't have a relationship with her son, Michael, as you mentioned, or her stepdaughters. And, in fact, as she delved deeper and deeper into this recording project, she distanced herself from them. Do you have any insight into that? And it also that she built a, a sort of chosen family afterwards with her staff.
1: Mm-hmm. I think um, – Obviously, this kind of project involves a a certain amount of control, Um, controlling an overwhelming cascade of information, trying to organize it, trying to make sense of it. Um, You can't control human relationships, and Marian wasn't good at that. And I also think that um, you could say she made certain sacrifices to pursue this project, and those sacrifices were really hurtful to people in her family and people around her. Um, and it doesn't mean what she did was of no, was not valuable or insightful, but um, it was at the expense of human relationships. And I think that's true of a lot of people who pursue work that's unprecedented. But I also think that um, this is a family story and there's a lot of tragedy as well as triumph in it.
7: Do you think that the bonds that she forged with her staff, with her chauffeur, her nurse, and her secretary, Toward the end of her life, do you think that's because she had more control since they were working for her?
1: Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, um, when her husband died, um, Marion was alone. She had alienated a lot of her family, and this group of people provided a, a kind of support and camaraderie that she, she didn't have, but they also were a group of people who helped her reconnect and to forge a new relationship with her son at the end of her life. So it's a pretty unconventional family story.
7: So how long were you working on this film?
1: I, I think I was working on this film four to five years. It's been a long haul. As you can imagine, like, you know, indexing that collection, digitizing the tapes, going through them, let alone doing all the production. It just It's a process that unfolded over a long period of time.
7: So if people want to attend the world premiere, can they do that?
1: There are a limited amount of tickets left. I don't know for how long, but the film uh, is premiering at the Tribeca Film Festival, but it will surely be back in New York.
7: Excellent. Matt Wolf, well, thank you so much for joining us. The film is called Recorder. Uh and I hope that people catch it at Tribeca or other festivals hopefully in theaters after that.
1: Great. Thank you.
5: I think I'm going to conclude with uh something from the archives and um and that will be um The Rescue List, which um it's a film by uh Alisa Fadele and uh Zach Fink. And um haven't haven't listened to it in a while, so I'm not exactly certain about all of the different aspects of it, but um it was a really, really, really good film. So enjoy the interview with the directors. Okay. Wow, your film The Rescue List is so so wonderful. It's such a great story. It's really sad, but it's also uh heroic because there there are some happy endings, which is really great.
8: Thank you. Thank you so
2: much. Thank you so much. We're so glad that you enjoyed
5: it. Yeah, yeah, and and what I really enjoyed is that I didn't know the story. Um I've I've been to Ghana. I'm going back in May and I, I never knew the story. What happened, you know, with Lake, with the Volta Lake? Uh, I saw, um, I saw the dam, and it just sort of reminds me. Since you all are in the Bay Area, of uh, sort of the move. It's, it's like a neo-colonial gentrification.
2: Yes, exactly. Mhm.
5: Yeah, I was wondering if you could maybe tell our audience uh, something about the history of of the region of of Lake Volta, the largest man-made lake in the world. I'm like, wow, and you know, going back to 1965 when um, all of these people's land was flooded and they were
2: pushed out. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so the 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 lake where the the trafficking and child slavery takes place in Ghana, it's called Lake Volta, and uh, it was created in 1965, just after Ghana gained independence from Great Britain. Um, An American aluminum company actually helped fund the construction of a hydroelectric dam on the Volta River, which uh, made this 3,000 square mile lake, Lake Volta. And the goal of the dam uh, from the government perspective was really to launch Ghana into its economic independence. Um, But the aluminum company actually negotiated cheap access to the electricity generated from the dam and ended up benefiting really more than people in Ghana did because the infrastructure was not built at the time to bring the electricity to the rest of the people in Ghana. Um, So it really just served the the aluminum company. The creation of the lake also displaced about 80,000 people who had previously lived on the land that was now flooded and um in the process of creating the lake fishermen from the southern coast of Ghana who previously had fished in the ocean ended up migrating onto the lake to start fishing there and that is really what started the trafficking of children to the lake mm
3: mm-hmm.
5: yeah and and how did you find out about the story uh about what's going on there with regards to the trafficking of these children um and in your story,
1: some of the children
5: we meet um uh in the uh, the rescue i guess the camp you know where the kids are brought um, were where trafficked as young as two years old,
3: yep
8: <clears throat> well. You know, interestingly, we, we were looking for a, a local California story at the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was at uh, an event in Marin where a gentleman was speaking. His name is James Kofi Annan. And he is the founder of the rescue organization Challenging Heights, through, through which we worked in Ghana. Um, James. As you, just mentioned, as you just mentioned, some of these children are trafficked as, as young as two or three years old. James was himself trafficked as uh, as a six-year-old to the lake. He was born in Ghana on the coast and trafficked up to the lake when he was six, and he escaped when he was 13. He's uh, now a man in his 40s, and when he was in his 30s, he'd already put himself through school and gone to college and had a good job. And uh, was working for Barclays Bank of Ghana, and made the decision that what he really wanted to do with his life was was help children like him, help those who had been enslaved on the lake in Ghana. And so he um, started rescuing children on the lake. And one of the first uh, young men that he helped free from slavery on Lake Volta was a man named Kwame. And th- that man now is the lead rescuer in the Challenging Heights organization and, in fact, is the man that is kind of the hero profiled in, in our film, The Rescue List. So there's a very strong connection between the founder of the organization and, and Kwame, one of our main characters in the film. Mm,
5: mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, as I was um, uh, watching the film and uh, sort of, I mean, I, I really, I really like the – the model of rescue in that the children are uh are counseled and stabilized and put in school and, and the the value of education is really paramount um in everyone's view, which is really beautiful and 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 then the whole idea of reconciliation um with you know taking the children letting the children go back. To you know where they where they um where they live re, try to reconnecting them with their their families, and that really worried me, <laughs> so I'm like, well, if the mother mm-hmm. sold the baby to a trafficker or the uncle who's still there sold the baby to a trafficker, I'm like, Oh my God, like what if they do it again and and then
2: so can you talk about
5: that a little bit? <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I also shared your concerns. Um, and, and it is, it is troubling um, uh, to think about these children going back into these homes that they were trafficked from. Um, challenging Heights, however, they, they really believe in creating strong children, strong families, and strong communities who are resistant to trafficking. And they feel that they cannot do this by, by turning these children into orphans and separating them from their communities. What they really want to do is empower these children, empower their parents to be resistant to trafficking, to know what it's all about, to know what's going on on the lake, and to return these children home to their communities so that they can become the seeds of change in these communities. And we've seen time and again in our work there that that is indeed what happens, that the children have these experiences on the lake, that they then have a level of recovery that is enabled by the therapy at the shelter, that when they go home they are in fact the ones educating the adults around them about trafficking and about being, you know, resistant to the, the traffickers' ploys. Mm-hmm. Um And and I I should say also that um, in many cases, you know, the traffickers are really preying on families that are living in extreme poverty. They're very vulnerable to the sort of tricks that the traffickers, you know, put in front of them. They basically say, send your child with me. He'll go to school. He'll learn a trade. I'll give you some money. And these are families for whom it is very difficult to meet their basic needs of food, shelter, and clothing. Um, and so it seems like a good opportunity in some cases for them to send their child to the lake to work, um, and they expect that that child will be returned home to them, and in fact they disappear.
3: Mm-hmm. So
2: so the traffickers really are um, misleading them in, in a big way. And once once parents realize what has happened, they are very regretful in most cases.
5: Mm, yeah, I, I really like the title.
2: Um, the audience doesn't quite
5: know what that means until, and you know, in, until the, the story is unfolding. I'm like, "Whoa, what a great title! This is so nice. <laughs> great, great title." <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah.
8: It it revealed itself to us in the same kind of way that the audience. I think gets to experience that you know, uh-huh. kind of in the making of the film. It uh-huh.
2: kind of presented
8: itself to us.
2: Yeah, we didn't we didn't know when we started making the film that that Kwame, you know, creates the rescue list and we didn't necessarily anticipate that it would be something that we we would be able to film and include in the story. So it was really really poetic how it revealed itself to us.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah I'm just sort of reminded of um, Maladome Somme's work um, uh, Like Water for Spirit You know when he uh, From Burkina Faso Was was kidnapped um, By I'm trying to think um, Well I don't know if it was by Catholic priests but anyway he was taken from his family yeah. When he was really young And put in uh, a boarding school And where they Similar to the The later um, uh, boarding schools for Native Americans, you know, he couldn't speak his language, he couldn't practice his culture, and he was really young. So uh, the hope was, I'm sure, that he would be indoctrinated into Catholicism and Western ways and forget, you know, that he was a person of um, African descent, you know, um, and and all of those things. And, And so what was really cool about his story is that, he sort of noticed the contradictions you know when he became a teenager, and then he he went back you know 'cause you know the story and and then he was able like these children um you know reunited with his family and so I was sort of I always would think about that in in light of what happened to my ancestors, you know who were um separated from their homeland through uh chattel slavery and and the whole idea of The participation of Africans who knew the families knew the children sometimes and 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 negotiated this like so the child would go with this stranger because the the person wasn't a stranger and I'm like well so your your rescue list sort of brings up that kind of stuff I'm like this is how it happened
8: yeah, I think that there's a lot of interesting parallels there and, and I know and i am really appreciative of the work of Melodoma Somme.
3: Mm-hmm.
8: Um and I I think that some of uh you know, what he experienced as um, you know, the, the, the Catholic uh boarding schools tried to indoctrinate him into a Western way. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in terms of the losing of his tradition and the losing of his native language and, and his experience of being Part of um, belonging to his village and his tribal community is that. That was a very specific uh, outcome. I think that the um, colonial powers really were aiming for with that. And and in, in in the case of the modern slavery that we're looking at, I think it's a really unfortunate, unintended consequence mm-hmm. of what happens to these children. Right, they're taken more for their their labor. Uh, you know, to enrich these fishermen on this lake, but in doing so, they're removing them from the context of their home communities and villages. You know, they're speaking a common language on the lake that might not necessarily be their native uh, tribal language from their their home village. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are, um, you know, separated from the rites of passage that they would normally be able to experience in their home village as they were growing up. Um, They are not given access to an education or health care. And so I think that while, uh, you know, these unintended consequences have, you know, enormous impacts on these children's lives, the the biggest one may be in terms of, you know, what they're able to do after they are set free by Challenging Heights because all of these children are coming out at 12, 13, 14. 17, in the case of you know our main, our main subject, Peter,
3: mm-hmm.
8: completely illiterate, not able to read or write, and it's really setting them up for, you know, this, the this slavery process has set them up for failure in the future, and Challenging Heights is doing such an amazing job of trying to turn that around and give these children an education, because they fully believe that that is uh, empowering them to, you know, kind of live the life that is going to be much more fulfilling for them
5: mhm, mm-hmm. right, yeah, so talk about um you know being an anthropologist and ethnographers and being there you know um with the children you know for for a length of time, I mean, how long did it take you to to make the film? How long were you with the children um particularly you know you 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 follow you know Kwame um you know the adult um Peter and Adam, two of the boys who are um who are rescued um and then we we see other children in in the lar- in the more uh the group scenes and things like that um as well as you know we go to the villages and we you know we we are a uh, part of the negotiations between mothers and uncles and fathers and the children which i really like the idea that they participate In the reconciliation, it's like, well, you can ask any questions you want to ask and you can, you know, challenge and you don't, you know, don't be docile, you know, (laughs) Uh, use these tools. I really, and I love therapists. They are so awesome. So anyway, yeah, talk about what it was like because I I was listening to your interview on um, Walter Turner's show last week and, uh, and, and you said that the translation came later um for some things and so it was real experience, experience uh it was you were more like in the moment but you did you had to sort of interpret just through body language and things like that but you didn't know exactly what they were saying sometimes
2: yeah actually yeah the entire time we did not have live translation and and I should say there are seven languages um Spoken in the film, one of which is English, and there's really just a little bit of English. But there are six other distinct Ghanaian languages, not dialects. There are hundreds of languages in Ghana, um, and we we did not have live translation as we were shooting. So um, we knew because the children go through a a process of rehabilitation. Um, at the shelter, we sort of knew that there were these major milestones along the way that we wanted to be there to film. And that all took place over the course of a year. Um, So we knew when we wanted to be there, but when we were filming, we had no idea what people were saying. (laughs) So, of course, we had to be very intuitive, very sensitive, um, and really just follow the energy of the moments, like when the children are – having their reunion meetings with their mothers for the first time in years since they were trafficked. We knew, of course, we wanted to be there, but we had no idea the words that were exchanged until we actually had that footage translated later, months later. Mm-hmm. Um, so the process of, of um, the, the whole filmmaking process took about three years. We spent the first year really developing our relationship with James Kofi Annan, the founder of Challenging Heights. Um, He wanted to make sure that he understood our process. Um, He was going to be letting us in, or he was considering letting us into the rehabilitation shelter, which is a very sensitive environment to film in, um, and on the rescue mission with Kwame as he goes to the lake to rescue children from slavery. So it was really essential that we – have a really solid foundation of trust. And and so we spent the time that it took to build up that foundation of trust. Um, and then we did the same thing when we arrived in Ghana on our very first trip. It was our first time to Ghana. We met um, Kwame and the rescue team. We met the um, social workers at the shelter, and we just we shared as much about ourselves and our process as we could so that they could get to know us and feel comfortable with us being around. As you mentioned, Zach and I have backgrounds in um, cultural anthropology. And so our approach in filmmaking is really to immerse ourselves inside the community where we're working and try to tell the story from um, a, a Native viewpoint. So allowing the words and actions and just the daily lives of our participants to unfold in front of the camera and for that to be the driving force of the film and the way that the audience can connect and understand the story um, so that we're not editorializing it ourselves and putting our own layer of meaning on top of it, but rather um, allowing our participants' lives and voices to, to rise to the top. And I think that when we explained that part of the process to everyone in the field, they felt very empowered by that idea because there had been lots of, you know, news reports and things like that where um, it's a hosted type of a show and and it's being explained for a a foreign audience. They liked the idea that they would be able to speak for themselves.
3: Mm
5: Yeah. Yeah and And then, um, you know, Zach, you were out there, or maybe you both out there on on the water, you know in the um in the boats uh and and your camera is just so invisible, and I was just wondering if you could talk about how you did that um there I mean, you all do not intrude at all in the story, and I'm like, I never notice you. And it's just, you know, you let the protagonists, the characters, tell the story themselves. I was just wondering if you could talk about, you know, as a cinematographer, how how you do that.
8: Yeah, sure. Yeah, well, it was actually both Alyssa and I in the okay. field uh, okay. for for everything that we shot. Mm-hmm. I'm the cinematographer and Alyssa was doing sound, so that mm-hmm. meant that she was out there with a, you know, like a 12-foot boom pole with a microphone on the end of it, uh, you know, <laughs> swinging it around to get our audio, which was always interesting on that small boat. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, as Alyssa said, our 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 style of filmmaking is one of immersion, and so um, you know, we begin by essentially showing up. Once we uh, had been given permission to work with Kwame and the children, you know, we just show up with the camera, and we, we are always seen with the camera, whether or not we're filming in that moment or not. We have it with us. It's a good size, you know, cinema camera that sits on my shoulder with a big lens and a big battery on the back. So it's, it's, it's definitely. It is definitely not invisible, but one of our goals is to become just so much a part of the fabric of, of everybody's everyday life that we just kind of, um, start to blend into the background as much as, you know, two Caucasian Americans can in in an African country, um, which is, you know, not easy, but it, it, it takes time and it takes trust. Um, I think that the, um, You know, that's kind of how it works in the shelter when we're working with the same group of people day in and day out. It's a little bit different on the lake, on the rescues, because we're interacting with, um, you know, uh, people traffickers and people who have uh, these children in their possession, and they're just seeing us as we're arriving. But the intensity of the negotiations and the conversations that Kwame is having with them on top of the fact that you know, he tells them from the beginning that we're there working with him, filming the work that he does, made it so that, you know, they were kind of forced into a conversation with him. He asked for their permission for us to be able to film. But once that was given, the the conversation is so intense that they're having that we just kind of recede into the background once again. So we try to stay as close as possible Uh, to what's happening, the action unfolding, Mm -hmm. without actually, uh, you know, impeding what's going on. Mm. Do you have anything you want to add to that, Alyssa? No. No? Okay. All right.
5: Yeah. Yeah, I I really loved um, just the way the social workers were attuned to the children and the teachers, like in the classrooms, uh, were attuned to the children and and how they noticed um, sort of the children that were not thriving, uh, you know, that were sort of you know, sort of closed into themselves and, 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 and asked them questions. I really like the beginning how they have the different objects, you know, to represent happiness and
1: sadness
5: and then all the different gradations between, you know, anger. That was that was really, really super. Um um but yeah, when um when Adam was, you know, one of your um one of one of the uh the characters that you're following in the story. Um, Adam, he um how old was is Adam he twelve? Um
2: he's, he, he's twelve years old, yeah.
5: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and they go to the water. That is so beautiful and I'm like and and we hear his prayer and I'm like, Whoa, you got a mic on him, that's so cool. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> yeah, that was a that was um a really moving scene to, to film. Of course, again, we didn't know what he was saying, but I, I was in tears from the emotion and intensity uh-huh. of it. When we spoke with the social workers about, about going with them to film this intervention that they had staged to help him deal with the grief that he had from um, his friend who disappeared on the lake, um, we we wanted to be really careful not to um, impede his recovery process in the process of us filming. And so we put a microphone on Adam beforehand and we said, you know, we're going to stay back. You know, we'll stay far away and we'll let him say this prayer. So that's why, you know, in that scene, you kind of see that we're far away. We had a long lens on the camera. We knew that we'd be able to hear his prayer and and just witness him, you know, go through this transformational moment, um, and it was really moving. I mean, I think one of the themes um, and threads that came through the, in the filmmaking process that we didn't anticipate and we couldn't have known beforehand was this incredible bond of friendship that all of the boys knit together on the lake in the absence of their families and their communities and it really comes through in that scene where you can see that Adam is so tied to this friend of his who he lost and um, we were just so taken and moved by these bonds of friendship that these boys have created uh, and we really wanted that to come through as a hopeful element in the story
3: Mm-hmm
5: yeah yeah and a similar story um which didn't end tragically you know was was peter's uh, friend uh is it tay um
3: hey. Hey.
5: Yeah. yeah yeah and 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 something about the list, how the list is generated by the rescued uh you know um which yeah. I thought was like wow, i mean that I don't know, if, I mean it's not maybe the whole list, but that list i think well I'm not sure. Tell me about yeah, I just thought that was really great. It sort of reminded me of sort of the biblical story about about Joseph who was reading the dreams and uh and and he he, he um he sent a message, you know, with someone who, who got out, you know, of captivity and the person didn't remember him <laughs> until he needed another favor. And I just thought about these children who, you know, who were helped, um, you know, by an older child or, you know, sort of developed a friendship, you know, like, um, you know, Adam did. And, and, you know, sort of the hard labor, like going down as a big, you know little boy or girl um, to untangle the nets and you can't see down there and then sometimes people don't come back up.
2: Yeah, anyway. Um, yeah, I, I can talk a little bit about, about that list. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so Kwame creates a, a rescue list, mm-hmm. um, and he he finds names for the list um, a couple of different ways. One of which you see in the film, he goes to the shelter and asks the children if they know of any other children who need rescuing. Um, and indeed, many many children do, and that's one of the storylines that we follow: is the rescue of one of our main participants best friends. Um, One of the other ways that that Steven um, generates his rescue list is that he goes into the source communities where these children are trafficked from and and speaks to family members and children at the schools there who have missing family members um, who who were trafficked to the lake. Um, And we didn't end up showing that side of of the list creation, though we did film it. he then registers that list with the the police force, so that when he goes out on the rescue mission, if if they um, run into any trouble in the negotiations with the slave masters, the um, police will come with them and help them on the rescue.
8: And I, I think that uh, I really appreciate that you picked up on that kind of parallel thread um, between the the relationships between the boys because we were thinking that about that a lot as we. Uh, as we shot and edited the film, the relationship between Adam and Stephen um, is mirrored in the relationship between Peter and Tay. Mm-hmm. And you know, one ends in a certain way, and um, the other ends in another way. And I think that we you know, we tried to show that um, that life on the lake is very uncertain and can go both ways. But as Alyssa said, these these bonds of friendship that the boys build, really give them a sense of belonging and kind of replaces the familial bonds that uh, that have been taken away.
5: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I was just thinking about the word, you know, dignity, um, that uh, one of the things that, um, you know, Challenging Heights sort of restores to the children in a visible way is their dignity, which I think is one of the reasons why they can, you know, go back, to the village and, and and be able to stand tall go sit in a classroom you know you're like 15 years old and you're in a third grade classroom or first grade or whatever grade you're in but you're like a big person and and you know this is where you need to be because academically this is where you are um, I was kind of a, kind of alarmed by the corporal punishment well if you do this you're going to get caned if you don't Arrive da da da. You're gonna get caned and da da da. You're gonna get caned. I'm like, oh my goodness, that's what they need to get rid of next—the caning.
8: <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> Certainly. Yeah. I mean
8: that—that that is the way that you know almost all schools in Ghana um, uh, punish the children for misbehavior. Mm-hmm. I, I will say that at the school inside the shelter at Challenging Heights, it's mm-hmm. absolutely forbidden. Um, they do not use corporal punishment at all. And so they do alert the children before they leave the shelter that it's very likely that the schools that they'll be returning to in their hometown do that.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then, you know, in the meeting, um, the adults tell the the caregivers, you know, the guardians to be gentle. I love that language, be gentle, because, you know, this child has suffered. You haven't seen him or her for like, I don't know, 10 years or longer or a little less um i thought that was really really beautiful and i just wish it translated to the to the schools but um yeah, <laughs> yeah but peter you know he looked like he was on time so that was good <laughs>
2: yeah yes the the children the children are exceptionally well behaved i think that they're they're not at risk for receiving
8: that corporal punishment. No, and I mean, Peter, all the kids that we, that we worked with were so eager to get that education. They know the importance of it. They realize that it's their, uh, you know, their chance at a better life, and they are doing everything that they can to be good students. So mm-hmm. we really, you know, support and applaud them for, uh, you know, for that commitment. Even, as you said, you know, if it's like, uh, and as Kwame says in the film, you know, they might be called the father of the first grade. But um, you know, to to do their best and to continue on with school and that's what they're doing.
3: Mhm.
5: Yeah, yeah, and I really like um the little girl who um sort of takes Peter under her wing. Um mm. and he and he's really happy that he has a tutor to sort of help him, you know, sort of navigate you know, home again.
8: Is yeah, really they have kind of a really sweet friendship.
2: Yeah, it was really um unexpected and just delightful to, you know, return home with Peter and see how quickly he struck up a friendship with a with a girl in his in his village um and you know, she was we would see them sometimes reading together and things like that. It was it was really sweet to see how um quickly he was he was reintegrating into his community.
5: Mhm. Yeah, yeah.
2: So I was wondering, um, if you could talk a little bit about about some of the takeaways,
5: you know, for yourselves, um, as uh as cinematographers and directors, uh, you know, sort of in connection with the work that you do. Um, you mentioned um that, you know, you that you, you have a non you do nonprofit work with children in schools around the world. I'm like, Okay and then I was just looking at um some of the work that you've done, like National Geographic, you had um, Inside New Orleans High about high school students in post-Katrina New Orleans, and, you know, and they were, like, traumatized as well. And and I'm a New Orleans native, so I was interested in that. And then children in Texas riding bulls and rodeos, like, really? Like, oh, my goodness. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Bulls, like, really? Um, Yeah, and then now, you know, you've got this, this experience with, uh, children that have been rescued from slavery in uh, modern-day Ghana, and all those layers, you know, you have the, you know, in the meetings, um, there are laws against this, and, and the the social workers are real clear that if something happens, you're going to go to prison for so many years, like 15, I think, was the minimum or something. That's a, that's a big chunk of time. And... um and then the chief telling, you know, the, the people sitting there that if he finds out about this, you know, like we do not participate in that. And then other people saying, well, you know, it's the government's fault that we have to resort to this, and I paid my good money, and da, 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 da. I'm like, whoa, this is really interesting, this conversation.
8: Yeah, well, I mean, I I think, you, you know, you started by, by asking about our takeaway yeah. um, and kind of comparing this to the other types of projects that we work on mm-hmm. around the world, many of which have been with children, although we've never worked in the, in the space of human trafficking and modern day slavery. For me, the thing that I took away that's been the most impactful and powerful on my life is that the, uh, the victims and survivors of, of child trafficking are, are no different than the children that we know and have worked with in other parts of our career and our lives. They're no different than, uh, you know, the kids in New Orleans trying to make it through high school. They're no different than the kids in Texas and Oklahoma who have a passion for bull riding. They are in an exceptionally challenging circumstance. They are completely uh, powerless to change their circumstance because they're enslaved, but they these are you know uh, warm, loving children who want to be with family, who want to make connections, who want to go to school and get an education and, and live a good life, and are prevented from doing that by the circumstances in which they find themselves and it's you know when we when we've uh, read about human trafficking and child slavery or seen. Uh, you know, news pieces about it. So often the um, the conversation and the information is conveyed topically and uh, through the mediation of a reporter who's giving us narration and we don't necessarily get to dive into the lives of those who are affected. And so the, the learning that I came away with was directly a result of the amount of time that we got to spend with these children, the fact that we, you know, were going through transcripts that allowed us to, you know, read English translations of the conversations that they were having with their friends. And, you know, they're they're the types of conversations that children are having all over the world about the the soccer or football game that they just played and, you know, the the teasing between them and the the friendship and camaraderie. Um, And so it just put such a, a human face on a topic that is so often faceless for me. It's just, you know, when you think about 40 million people enslaved in the world, that it's such an incomprehensible number for us to be able to meet and really get to know three of those faces and those names and those stories was a, a, a truly a moving experience. And, um, you know, it makes, us, makes me want to you know, do everything that we can to to help not just those three, but the other, you know, 20,000 kids that are enslaved on Lake Volta and the other 40 million people that are enslaved around the world.
3: Mm
5: -hmm. Yeah. Alisa, do you um, have anything you want to add to that?
2: Yeah, I mean, of course, making this film and working with these, children has been um, a life-changing experience. We were so inspired by James Cosey Annan, the man who founded this organization um, that we committed three years of our lives to making this film so that we could draw this connection that Zach was talking about. You know, really, we made this film to provide a way for audiences to connect with children Whose lives are so drastically different from theirs, and so that people can understand what they've gone through, and hopefully, um, so that they will be, so that audiences will be compelled to learn more about trafficking and slavery, which exists all around the world, um, and, uh, hopefully become abolitionists, you know, do something about this. Um, we we have the power to to change this, and all children deserve the chance at childhood and education. In our modern world, we believe strongly in that, and we want to help this organization and other human rights organizations to achieve that goal.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah, and you're having a special screening with uh, a panel on on Wednesday, right?
3: Yeah,
8: that's correct. We're doing a a collaborative screening as part of the San Francisco International Film Festival with Human Rights Watch. It's going to be at the Dolby Labs Theater on Market Street at 7 p.m. this Wednesday. Mm -hmm. Um, If you visit the San Francisco uh, International Film Festival website, you may see that the tickets are already at rush, which means that they're temporarily (laughs) sold out. But – Please don't please don't click away. Keep checking it because they do release tickets uh, on the day of the event, and it's very likely not only that you might be able to buy a ticket the day of, but if it's still at rush, please come down to the theater because uh, you can get in line and get rush tickets. You know, a half an hour before the film begins. So don't let it deter you.
2: There's also one other screening if you're not able to make that one on Thursday, the 12th of April at 3.30. It's a matinee screening at the Children's Creativity Museum in San Francisco.
8: And we'll be at both of those for Q&As after, and that Wednesday screening will be an extended Q&A with Human Rights Watch.
5: Okay, excellent, excellent. Um, and and uh. I really wanted to do something, particularly when, you know, I learned that resources were uh, were an issue, um, not that, you know, um, the organization, you know, Challenging Heights was going to close its doors, but, you know, they didn't have like a whole lot of money. And, and I noticed that there were other organizations when I just did a, a check um you know, search that are also doing similar work, but Challenging Heights seems to be really unique in that it's, you know, run by someone who has experienced, you know, what these children have experienced. And the people sort of in leadership positions within the organization um, are indigenous to that particular area as well as, you know, um, have experienced this themselves. So I was wondering how do people um, donate um, resources, money, or anything like that to Talenting Heights? Do they have a website or something? Um,
2: they do, and I, I'm so glad you asked about that. So um, anyone who is, is interested in their work, um, we can vouch for the incredible work that they do and, and how they use the resources that they're, they're given. Um, you can go to challengingheights.org to donate, and they have um, an organization called Friends of Challenging Heights, which is a U.S.-based nonprofit Uh that helps direct uh, U.S.-based donations to their Ghanaian-based organization, which is Challenging Heights.
8: Yeah, so it is a a tax-deductible donation, um and uh you know listeners can be can rest assured we have vetted the organization and we know that <laughs> those the donations made in America end up kind of accumulating here for a little while before they're sent over to Ghana so that they're not um being dinged for the the international wire transfer of money mm-hmm. it it helps the organization save
5: right yeah is um are the friends of Challenging Heights are are they located here, um, did they sponsor James Kofi Annan's visit?
2: Yes, they're located in the U.S. and um, they they did help sponsor him to visit here.
5: No, I mean, like, are they here in the Bay Area? Are they here in Marin oh. County where you where you saw him? Are they local to to us here in the in San Francisco no, Bay area? No, they're not.
8: They're they're not local, and they're a, a much smaller organization than the um, than challenging heights in Ghana, which has about a hundred uh, staff members. There's just a, a few people that work for the organization, and they're based in Charlotte, North Carolina.
5: Oh, okay, okay okay and and lastly, I wanted to ask you um well actually two things uh I wanted you to you know talk about your team because you have a really phenomenal team oh my gosh i I know some of that work that they've done um and but I also wanted to ask you about about the girls um uh because when I think about girls being uh trafficked um often there's um they're also Molested and raped and things like that, and so um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, sort of why we don't see any girls profiled um, or as characters, and and the makeup of of the um, of challenging heights when you were there, like like the percentages, like how many girls versus how many boys.
2: Yeah, so um, so girls are also trafficked. To, to Lake Volta and they typically are doing um, domestic work. Um, so they're working you know, in the home, uh, cooking, cleaning, taking care of children, and then processing the, the fish that the boys are catching and getting them ready for market. Um, girls are also particularly vulnerable to uh, sexual abuse and uh, sex slavery on the lake. Um, And because of that, the recovery process for the girls um, takes quite a bit longer. Um, Boys are usually in the shelter for about a year, and girls sometimes spend two years there before their recovery is complete. Mm. Um, The shelter at the time that we were working there held about 60 children, and I would say there were, I think, about nine girls at the time, that, that we were working there. When we started out, we, um, of course, we, we really wanted to work with a, a girl and tell her story as well. Um, however, we were very careful to make sure that the children that we worked with were in a good place to work with us. And so we worked very closely with the social workers and staff at the shelter to help us Um, with the initial process of meeting the children and, in fact, um, suggesting kids who they thought were far enough along in their recovery. Um, And we found that when we started talking to some of the girls there, we didn't feel that it it would be beneficial to their recovery to to be working with us on on the film, and so we we elected not not to, to go there so that they could... They could maintain their their recoveries, and that we wouldn't be an impediment to, to that.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah.
8: I can t- talk a little bit about our team. Um, any any documentary film is made uh, only by virtue of the of a, a enormous collection of people coming together to make it a reality. Um, it takes so many creative. Uh, forces to make a fi- uh, any documentary film, uh, ours included, happen, and so we are very fortunate to have uh, th- have the opportunity to work with uh, incredible forces in uh, in creativity and power to move this thing forward. Um, the the two uh, main people that we've worked with very closely all the way along. Um, our, our friend and collaborator, Davis Coom, who is a Denver-based producer and editor uh, who did both those roles with us on the rescue list, and he um, has produced and edited a, a number of other really incredible films uh, throughout his very illustrious career. Um, and we also worked...
5: Let's, let's, stop, uh, let's stop for a moment and, and mention okay. um, Iron Ladies. That was, like, Awesome. I mean, among other things nice. that he's done, but it's like, yep.
8: whoa.
5: <laughs> yeah. Iron
8: Ladies of Liberia is mm-hmm. the film that, that you're speaking about, yeah, yeah and it's um – a beautiful, beautiful and well-told story uh, directed by uh, Daniel Youngie that Davis produced and edited. Um, and we met him about the time that that film was premiering. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's about 10 years ago now.
3: Oh. Um,
8: and we worked with him on, on a, a few projects along the way, but this is the, the first project that we've had the pleasure of working with Davis as a a collaborator at the level of producer and editor, so we feel really fortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, the other uh, well-known person on our team is our executive producer, Steve James. Uh, he made an incredible uh, film called Hoop Dreams mm-hmm. uh, a number of years ago and has you know, made beautiful films uh, almost every year since, it seems like. But there is, I, I do want to make a particular call out for a new series uh, that is about to be released. It premiered at Sundance that Steve directed and produced. Um, it's going to be on STARS Network coming this fall, and it's called America to Me, and it is a, a beautiful, empowering look at uh, race relations and the um, achievement or opportunity gap uh, in between African-American and white students in a Chicago public high school. Um, and it follows, I think, maybe like 12 children over the course of a school year in this uh, in this school, and it is incredibly powerful, and it's something that everybody should uh, tune into when it gets released later this year.
3: Mm, interesting,
5: yeah. Wow, yeah. And um, I um, I know I know the Interrupters of his. I also know the New Americans, and I know is yep. small enough to jail.
8: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we, we, we. I, I just, you know, left out the the film that was recently nominated for an Academy Award this year. I mean, Steve <laughs> is such a prolific, prolific guy, and his work is just uh, mind-blowingly amazing. hmm
5: Yeah, yeah, it's really, really awesome. So, is your film gonna have a theatrical release?
8: You know we're working with uh, a wonderful sales rep right now, uh Annie Roney of Rocco Films, to help us secure distribution. So we don't quite know where we're going uh, on the distribution side with it yet, but we are hoping that we can get it in front of as wide of an audience as possible in the near future.
5: Oh, that'd be really super yeah and I'm sure a lot a lot of your footage is on is was on the cutting floor, so hopefully you know it will be available. With some outtakes yeah. or something
6: <laughs> yeah,
8: I think that that will be part of the, the distribution plans to, to be able to let people have a, a deeper glimpse in perhaps
5: mm-hmm. yeah and could you give give the website for your organization as well as for the film?
8: Yeah, our film's website is just the name of our film so it's the list.com and there is a link um, under the take action section uh, of our website, TheRescueList.com, which will take people to the organization's website, the, non- the nonprofit in Ghana that does the uh, rescue and rehabilitation. Their name is Challenging Heights, and their website is ChallengingHeights.org. Yeah. No, I
5: meant your organization. I thought you all had
8: one, too. Oh, yes, we do, actually. Our, uh, we have a film production company. Um, we're called Collective Hunch. Uh, and that's collectivehunch.com
5: oh yeah I remember that Yeah. wow I want to congratulate you on on your you know this this latest um, project the rescue list and um, you know I just think I know you must believe in magic because it's just it's so wonderful I just love that rainbow that's just so gorgeous (laughs) yeah Oshimare yes (laughs) <laughs> you yeah. see, yeah, a, and, and the children are like, oh, look at the rainbow. Um, yeah, it's just so beautiful, and wow,
8: you know. Thank um, you. We felt like the, the documentary gods were smiling upon
3: us at
5: oh, that moment. Oh, certainly, certainly. Yeah, you, you were in the right place doing the right thing. <laughs>
3: yeah.
5: Wow. Well, congratulations again, and thank you so much for your work, and, uh, yeah, thanks for the conversation as well.
3: Thank
8: you very
5: much. It was a pleasure.
8: Yeah, absolutely, Wanda. Thank you so much for such a close watch of our film and a wonderful conversation.
5: Sure, Sean. Sure. I look forward to meeting you at some point. Likewise. Us as well.
3: Thank you. <laughs>
5: All right. You take good care. You too. And safe travels. Bye. 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 Thanks so much. You're welcome. You're welcome.